Hi, this is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and this is The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings as much as the buildings themselves. Approximately one in every 14 people aged over 65 will suffer dementia in the UK. How do we design inclusive places for our aging population? And I'm not just talking about benches and ramps. I'm talking about an aging population that is more likely to have cognitive issues when they're navigating our cities and spaces. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Samantha Billieri. She studies urban planning from the perspective of dementia. As an urban planner, her research uses critical approaches at the intersection of planning and public health and well-being to connect with communities. One of her main areas of research is understanding the experiences of people living with dementia in their neighborhoods, how we can involve people with dementia in the way we make our cities, and how people with dementia navigate and use spaces around us. In this interview, we talk about what people with dementia can teach us about how we can make more inclusive places. Hi, uh, my name is Samantha Biglieri, and I'm an assistant professor in the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. I'm a practicing urban planner, and I do research at the intersection of health and well-being and urban planning. And specifically, I do research into how more marginalized populations experience the city and and the impacts onto their health and well-being. And I work with older adults. I work with people living with dementia and how they navigate their cities. And then I'm also really interested in how uh, suburban areas of our cities, you know, how is that social infrastructure built? What are the experiences of people living in those places? And how do they, you know, navigate their worlds um, and create caring and supportive networks? Uh, And yeah, I teach uh, young planners um, at the university. And I also am really fortunate to do uh, community work based in the city. So I um, am on the board of the Council on Aging and do a bunch of uh, work with older adults in that capacity as well. So tell me a bit about what happens when you when you age or when you have dementia and how your relationship to the place where you live changes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first thing I'll say is that all older adults are different. And same thing with all people living with dementia. A lot of folks will say, you know, you meet one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia, right? Um, But what I can say is that sometimes as we age, um, we might experience some kind of impairment, be it a mobility related, uh, sensory related, cognitive related like dementia, and our access to the world can shrink. And that really also depends on the kind of environment that we live in. And so how I often think about it and what what the research tells us is that let's say you live in a suburban environment, a place where you have to use the car to get everywhere. And as you age, maybe you lose your ability to drive. And that drastically cuts down on the world you have access to, right? Because you can't really walk anywhere and the car is the only way you can get there. And now that's being taken away. And I contrast that with uh, living in, let's say, a more walkable community that has uh, transit. Uh, You can walk to the store. You can walk to the high street. Um, If you lose your driver's license, it's not going to have as much of an impact on you because you'll still be able to walk. Um, And so that's an example of what happens as we age. 
So when you're looking to consult with with people with dementia, how does that change the way that you might kind of have those conversations about their experience of the city and the place around them? How do you have kind of an inclusive uh, conversation? And do you do you have advice for people who are seeking to work with people in that community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so the thing is that when you get diagnosed with dementia, there is a lot of stigma associated with living with dementia. And it's a stigma that is incredibly prevalent. Um, a lot of people that I've worked with have said, you know, their friend is when they tell their friends they have dementia, they treat them like they're contagious and they stop talking to them. And so there is this real like people are scared of it. And so there's this stigma associated with it. And there's also this stigma of, you know, you get diagnosed and you can no longer contribute to society. And that's just not true, right? Um, And it's just not true in that, you know, maybe someone communicates differently, but our job as like planners, city builders, designers is to come up with different ways to find out what they need, right? And um, when I do that research, I'm using like different kinds of methods and like sometimes things work and sometimes things don't. And so I always tell people, you know, it's like throwing the spaghetti up against the wall and trying to see what sticks. Um, But Specifically in uh, trying to include people living with dementia into, let's say, a planning process that we might already do. Um, I did work with uh, people in Waterloo, Canada. So this is just about an hour uh, northwest of Toronto. And we went to city planning meetings um, in pairs. And we didn't really tell people we were going. We were just, you know, citizens um, experiencing the public meeting. And afterwards, uh, I did a little interview with them. And we talked about what could have been changed about that city planning meeting that would have made it more accessible to them. And so they're kind of like small things that we could do probably tomorrow um, and don't really cost that much money. And so they're sort of uh, split into three groups. The first one is the physical setup of a room. So um, I'm sure some of the folks listening to this have been to a public open house and it's like in a gym and it's like loud and you can't hear anything. And like people are just talking, but it's 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 super auditory and like overwhelming. And you might have been there and it's like awful lighting or it's really bright and you like there's weird shadows. And so for us, that's an annoyance. But for someone living with dementia, that almost made them want to leave the open house because they get really, or lots of folks get overwhelmed by sound and noise and activity and light very easily. And so we we then went to an open house that was in a church, but it was a carpeted room and it was small. And folks talked about how much they loved that kind of location because they felt like they could concentrate. And so selecting location is really important. These auditory lighting considerations that, again, you may not think about, but are really important and and can prevent um, participation. The sort of second category um, is related to the presentation of information. And so a lot of the meetings you went to were open house style. So they had boards up and they were sort of in this semicircle in a room and they and you would walk up to the boards and there would be planners there to answer your questions. And so we walk up to these boards and the great thing about boards for someone with dementia is that they can take as much time as they want at each board. So that means they get to go at their own pace. Versus when you're listening to a presentation, you're forced to learn at the pace of the presenter. 
And sometimes that was too fast. And so having these boards not only was easier to um, easier to like give them time and space to think, but also because they're in this semicircle, they kind of knew where they had to go next. And there was a visual indicator versus them constantly having to ask, oh, what do I do next? Um, because that can be really self-conscious for someone living with dementia. And then the last area was communication. And so again, really small thing, but we'd be looking at a board and one time a planner came up and they were like, uh, they started talking really fast and they used jargon and they were kind of overwhelming. They go, oh, do you have any questions? So what do you think of this? Like particular, blah, blah, blah. the person with dementia was just like, uh, and stop and physically close, cross their arms and turned away. And I contrast that with other folks who came up and said, uh, do you have any questions? And usually a person with dementia would say no. And they say, oh, um, can I tell you a little bit about this board? Or, or can I tell you a little bit about it? And sort of opening the, the questions that way, probing gently, giving people space and time to respond, pausing made a huge difference. And so we like walked out of that meeting. And I remember one of them saying, and like most of them said things like this, you know, I don't necessarily remember what happened, but I remember that the planner made me feel like I was important. And, you know, yeah, we may not remember what people say, but we remember how they make us feel. And that's incredibly important for someone to mention. It's important for everybody, right? Um, and what was really interesting about that was, yes, these were these humble open house statutorily required meetings, but these folks are like, you know, it's so nice that some city builder cares what I think. Like somebody, somebody in my community cares what I think about this particular project. And it, it made them feel belonging and inclusion. And again, this is a humble open house, right? Um, so just think what we could do if we uh, doing more targeted things like go along interviews and photo voice and all those kind of arts based, interesting methods, um, what could be achieved. So long answer. <laughs> I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about these rooms and I'm thinking about that kind of, um, you know, space in which we connect. And then I'm thinking about the digitization we're just going through mm. um, and this kind of last couple of years where these have become online or postal connections yeah you know do is there a, a way to do this digitally or is that a barrier for inclusion yeah great question uh and i think a lot of people would say you know digital inclusion for older adults can be difficult but we do know that like a lot of older adults are now accessing the internet and computers and ipads um but it's also it's about um, not like f trying to facilitate that access because, you know, people live on low incomes, that kind of thing. Um, and also trying to make sure that these platforms are inclusive. Uh, since COVID-19 uh, with the Trial Council on Aging, we brought everybody online and that's been like a big hurdle. But some of the other ways that I've seen people connect, as you mentioned, is through the post um, and the idea of doing like workbooks, like sending people workbooks of questions or information about a project has also been really successful. Uh, colleagues of mine were doing some work in a mid-sized city uh, called Peterborough, just uh, north of Toronto. 
And they sent workbooks with like stickers and they had to draw and like write down preferences about housing. Uh, And it was really successful because it was tangible. It was something to do and they didn't have to really figure out a computer to do it. Uh, So I think like the post can be a really effective method. Um, You can take photos, you can send those things, but there's also a lot of work about digital and technological inclusion being done uh, for older adults uh, in Canada. There's the project, uh, it's called Age Well, and it's this like collaboration of researchers from all kinds of disciplines that are working to build tech with older adults and with people living with dementia. So they're like involved from the very beginning. And so like that might be another place to work. That being said, uh, I'm doing research right now and everybody wants to be able to do it in person. Of course, safe, distanced, masked, all that kind of stuff. But the vast majority of people I'm working with right now say they can't really relate to a Zoom screen. Uh, And so that in-person engagement is better. But, you know, we got to be creative. And I think the post is a good idea. In person is also the city. So, yeah. and I'm hearing your, your talk about that kind of auditory environment and that, you know, all the lights. I know I've sp- spoken to neuroscientists before about how that can be really difficult for neurodiverse populations kind yeah. of working through. And also when there are um, traffic changes all of a sudden, you know, when there's kind of a, a diversion on your street you were expecting or construction and how this can be hugely disruptive. But maybe if we go into that a little bit, what is the experience? You know, what are some of the the things that we maybe take for granted in the city or in our neighborhoods that can be a real barrier to allowing people to kind of live out their life with dementia Mm. um, in in their home? Yeah. Uh, uh, Sorry. Just as I heard you uh, phrase that question, I was like, yes, these are all very similar things. Right. Um, And as a small anecdote. It seems like I've given a couple of talks recently um, and folks have come up to me afterward and said, you know, I'm autistic and like I feel exactly the same way about open houses, about different built environments. Um, And yeah, so to speak to your question, um, I'm going to go with a sort of an overwhelm uh, question as well. Um, So. I did this work with uh, folks in Waterloo and they were living in these suburban neighborhoods and I was walking with a gentleman and we were walking towards an all-way intersection. Uh, So think like classic North American 60 kilometers an hour, four-lane road. There are red lights and green lights. There are walking symbols. Um, And so we are probably 50 meters away from the light. And he turns to me and he says, we're going to cross the road. And I said, in the middle of the road? And he said, yeah. So there was a median in the middle of the road. And so we crossed in the median and then we got to the other side. And I said, just out of curiosity, like, why didn't we cross at the signalized intersection? Because, you know, conventional wisdom would say that's safer. The cars are stopped, that kind of thing. And he said, you know... I cross here because I can control the amount of information that I'm getting and it's it's more doable for me than at the intersection. At the intersection, there are red lights, yellow lights, green lights, there's the little person blinking at you, there's a countdown going on for the pedestrian. I have to make sure I don't hit people who are walking towards me. I have to make sure I stay in the lines when I'm walking. There are cars turning right, there are cars turning left. 
And he says, just too much. But when I cross at the median, all I have to pay attention to is the cars coming at me in one direction. And then I can take a break, take a deep breath, and then look at the other set of cars and cross the street. And I thought, you know, this is fascinating, not only because like conventional wisdom would tell us that the signalized intersection is more safe, but because he was actively doing things to cope, to like make it easier for himself. And so when I was doing this work with people, yes, we identified a whole bunch of barriers, but also these really fascinating ways that people were adapting, changing their behavior, changing their environment so that they could continue to live in it. What's interesting for me is I'm thinking about this intersection. I'm thinking all those things were put there to make it easier and safer. That's right. So how are they, how is it possible that we got it so wrong? Right. Absolutely. And I, you know, it's so funny because like I thought that too. And so like, what does it look like to have like these more safer intersections? And maybe it's about simplifying them. Maybe it's about having more mid-block crossings that are just the pedestrian crossing sign, right? Something more simple than all of those things at once. Um, and I think we have to listen to people living with dementia, to folks who have with neurodiverse conditions too, right? About what works for them um, instead of going with what maybe conventional wisdom might tell us is the safest from a traffic engineering perspective. And you talked about how you, you know, you work with marginalized communities, but when we're talking about the neurodiverse and people with dementia, that's not a marginalized community. That's a huge Mm, population. It is. It is. It absolutely is. And it's a really diverse population too. Right. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of the work, um, that's been done on like working with people with dementia and neighborhoods, often it's done with, um, white, more privileged folks because they're the ones who are accessing services and might be easier to reach. Um, and there is this like growing interest in like, how does, how do different, um, identities intersect with dementia and what does that mean? Um, and I'm actually right now working on starting a project to compare, um, folks living with dementia who are immigrants to Canada and folks who have grown up in Canada, because I think that place and and where you were born and your memories about what that place is like influences how you move around in this new place that you're living in. And I, I compare it, um, both of uh, my mom and dad grew up in a suburban municipality just west of Toronto. And so I have Italian grandparents who came when they were in their late 20s to Canada. And I have grandparents who were born here. And their experiences of, experiences of place were really different, even though they only lived two kilometers from each other. And so that's sort of my hunch, but I also know that with dementia, familiarity plays a huge role in whether or not you feel safe in a neighborhood. And so suburban neighborhoods, we'd say, you know, not great for older adults, you can't walk. But everyone I worked with lived in a suburban neighborhood and loved their suburban neighborhood because they felt safe. They knew where they were. It was familiar to them. And so if you've immigrated from another country, like, how does that impact your sense of familiarity? And so that's what I'm hoping to explore next. 
My natural instinct is to say, oh, well, from what you're saying, it'd be better to have to mention a city than to have it in the suburbs. But, mm. but what, you know, what is, uh, that's my instinct is that, well, because you mentioned it was walkable, but then again, there's a huge amount of overwhelm in mm-hmm. the, in the city. There's a huge amount of, um, of stuff going on and there's kind of an, um, extra cluttering going on all the time. You know, there's a move, uh, across the UK, especially, you know, the cafe culture came up. That's a lot of stuff on the pavement as well as putting up extra extra signage and extra lanes that do more things and um, and and cycle lanes, lots of things that are hugely positive, but we are talking about more signs, yeah. more instruction, more things to kind of cope with or, or obstacles um, in that kind of field of vision and play. But I guess I'm going to throw that over to you, you know, at, you know, it, suburbs or city? <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's, um, it's definitely not an either or like that. That's the thing. Like, it's funny that or interesting that you bring up um patio like the patio culture and like having extra signs um I was actually in a meeting um for another project I'm working on and one of the gentlemen who's part of our group um he's living with dementia and he was telling us all about how in Vancouver they've got all these patios and signs up and he said it's absolutely overwhelming and he doesn't feel like it's a safe for him to walk and so I really think we need to pay attention to what folks are saying about that, Um, especially uh, disability activists um, are talking about how patio culture like literally takes away access on the sidewalk. Right. Um, And these are wonderful things that are a result, I think, of the COVID-19 pandemic, opening up patios, that kind of thing. But we also have to be cognizant of like, how is it impacting folks who are disabled, who are older, who have dementia? Um, and the thing about cities versus suburbs is that suburbs there, there are a lot of problems associated with access, right. And needing in the car. Um, and so that's a problem, but then again, people talk about this sense of familiarity and Canada as a country, 80% of Canada, according to professor from Queens university is suburban, right. And so I think, um, you know, if we're thinking about changing suburbs, it's about building shops on corners, more permissive zoning, trying to create corner store type um, destinations, that kind of thing. Uh, And yeah, the city can be overwhelming. Young and Dundas Square in Toronto is quite overwhelming with all of the signs and all the sounds and all the things going on. And so... Yeah, it's it's really it's not easy. And and the other thing is that um, my work was mostly focused with people in suburban areas, but I'm also really interested in what about those people who live right downtown and that's they're familiar to them. Uh, and and then it also brings up questions of what happens when a new project gets built, when a historical site gets knocked down or a store changes. How does that impact somebody's sense of familiarity? We don't think about that enough. No. I want to pick up, you've just mentioned this, the corner store, the local shop, and I know you've studied that. Why is that important suburb or, you know, to add to the suburbs? Why is the, the, the local, how does the local shop figure into, to this world you're describing? Yeah, I think it fits in, in that, um, (sighs) creating something that you can walk to that you don't need a car to get to. I think that that makes a huge difference um, for a lot of the folks in Waterloo. The some of them, most of them, could walk to something, 
like be a, a we call it Tim Hortons in Canada it's like the coffee chain that's everywhere and they always talk about being able to go to the Timmy's because they get treated nicely by the people who work there and it makes them feel included um and so there is this importance of being able to get to stuff, to get to things you need, but also that social connection associated with being able to go to a cafe or a corner store. The, the, they call them um, like these ephemeral encounters. That's I think what the literature calls them. And I, it's kind of like, you know, you're walking down the street and someone says hi to you. And every single walking interview that we were on, we interacted with somebody in some way, shape or form about the football match the night before or about like the baby in the stroller or the little dog. And so we have this interaction and then we keep walking and the person who I was with would always have this like extra pep in their step. And it seems small, but it also makes this big difference. And I think that that's easier facilitated when you have a walkable destination to go to, as opposed to like just doing laps around the block all the time. Um, It's an interesting proposition because I know some of the developers, uh, or one in particular, Lenlise, has done a lot of work around loneliness Mm. um, and this kind of loneliness epidemic, it's being called. And it seems to me that this this idea of something to walk to and a place to connect with someone, um, you know, would probably go some way to to supporting that as well, or in theory, at least, you know, having an ephemeral place to connect. What's interesting is we also are coupling that with this idea that retail's undergone an incredibly difficult year. Mm-hmm. We have this sense that, um, you know, maintaining a shop right now is is really challenging under the pressures of both um, online shopping and, um, you know, the, uh, the pressures of keeping a business open during um, the ongoing pandemic. And I think, uh, you know, I'm curious about those kind of uh, old-fashioned things we had other than the corner store, like a library or, you know, they're usually still empty. But, I mean, is there is there any um, anything to suggest that we need to, you know, maybe find a way to invigorate these old assets that that might still be in the suburbs and they might yeah. still be, they were built at some point in yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, you talk about the library and I think the library is this incredible place that are at least here in Toronto and I think globally too like libraries are so much more than books now um there are places to rent technology there are places for like job training there are places to like meet people learn new languages all these different ways that they're adapting and libraries I find are really this center of um inclusion for a lot of marginalized people right you a library is the only place you can go sit without having to buy anything, right? And so I think libraries are vital infrastructure. Um, We're lucky in Toronto, we have a lot of libraries and I have walked by a couple and them being closed in the pandemic has been really devastating, but they're really busy. Um, And and I think, you know, can we repurpose these public spaces to do more than just what they were intended for, I think is a really interesting aspect too. you know, um, you talked about retail. I've now seen a bunch of cafes where it's like part shop, part little bit cafe so that, you know, they have like two different ways of creating income or engagement, that kind of thing. 
Um, and yeah, like there, there are, there are so many like creative things that are going on in communities that I think, you know, we just have to talk more about and give more people ideas, right. About what's going well. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, everything that you're touching on really relates to, to inclusion. Um, and uh, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, there's a lot of models, uh, being talked about right now. There's a lot of talk in our world around, um, making a positive social impact and how you might do that through your work or through your design. Um, there's, there's the climate emergency, which underpins a lot of the work that, that, um, is going on right now, or it relates to it in some way. Um, and then there's also, you know, these kind of overarching concepts like the 15 minute city and these kind of this, this search for, um, all encompassing narrative that will kind of give us a drive. And I mean, maybe just, you know, zooming out a little bit, um, how do you go about, uh, you know, kind of applying those? I mean, it, it, you talk about overwhelming at that intersection in some ways we're at a city making intersection yeah. right now. Um, so, you know, how are, what are the discussions going on amongst, you know, your, your peers in academia and in your head around that intersection and where we go from here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, all of these different movements for inclusion, like the 15-minute city, I would argue things like the age-friendly city, the child-friendly city, um, the dementia-friendly city, I think, uh, and like sustainable cities. I think all of these things are, you know, are coalitions of one another and can be built up as coalitions. And I also really recognize the power of a narrative, right? Um, what gets politicians behind something what gets them to fund the infrastructure, to fund whatever it might be to improve the lives of the most marginalized folks. Um, for me, though, you know, these different movements, I think, again, power of the narrative, which is fantastic. For me, it's about how do we put it into regulation and policy? And uh, how do we get people to put these design things into principle or from principles into like actual designs? And perhaps that is putting it right into regulation in Canada or in Ontario. Sorry, we have things called uh, official plans, which are a plan for the entire municipality. And then we have zoning bylaws that talk about, you know, how big can your setbacks be and how tall can your buildings be? And a lot of the different um, design recommendations that I might have or these different movements have, they're things that we can put into policy or things that we can think about doing as incentive schemes as well. And sort of, I, I sort of uh, think about it as like, what should we do as the stick model, which is like carrot, <laughs> carrots, my goodness, sticks, which is like <laughs> regulation and policy. And then what can we do for carrots? You know, incentives, certification programs, stuff like that. Um, and so for people living with dementia and some of the design recommendations, I did work that was actually based on a study done in the UK, um, by, uh, Mitchell and Burton in 2006. And I took all of their design recommendations and I put them on a base case in, in North America in, in near Toronto and found that you could do it. And the difference between building that development and building like a typical development was very, it was the return I did pro forma is the return on the bottom line was very similar. And it, it could be done with a couple of parking reductions and a couple of re, uh, reductions on what we call development charges. So to be able to build a house, you have to pay a tax here. Um, so a little bit of reduction on that. And it was possible. It was good for the bottom line. 
I didn't change it too much. Um, so I think it's like part policy, part funding and regulation. And then it's also, we have all these different narratives, child-friendly, age-friendly, disability-friendly. But I think we need to make sure that we're actually doing the research with different groups and trying to understand what are, you know, what are similar access needs, but also what are conflicting access needs. Because for instance, um, tactile paving uh, is something that uh, warns a blind user that that's the edge of the pavement, right? That could be considered a tripping hazard for an older adult. And so I don't think it's until we start to understand, like, what are these conflicts that we can think about how do we move past it and contextual conflicts, too. Right. It's not enough to just do a checklist of features. It's so much more than that. Um, And so, yeah, so it's, it's not only like what are these conflicts between different access needs and how do we overcome them? How do we overcome them together? Like, how do we co-create that process with people? And then it's also a combination of these checklists and context-specific work that I know people will understand. Like, every place is different. Um, So, yeah, that's a long-winded answer of multiple things. But (laughs) the checklist is so appealing, though. I know. I want to have 15 minutes to my corner shop and my park and Mm -hmm. my, you know, uh, I want to bump into some people on the way and, you know, in the cafe culture. But like you said, all those things create cultures. I want to pick up on green space, actually, because we didn't really talk about it. Is there a particular um, need there? You know, are parks or is that kind of um, open rolling landscape or, you know, kind of unstructured landscape problematic if, if you are somebody with dementia or actually are they just as lovely and desirable as they are to everybody else in the city who wants to create urban forests? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Uh, and I would say that for the folks that I worked with, they loved the green space that they had access to. It was definitely you know, on the top list of the places they wanted to go and walk through. Uh, And, you know, it also relates back to what we know about nature and its relationship to well-being and feeling less stressed. You know, we the concept of like forest bathing and all that uh, kind of good stuff there. Um, So just a couple of examples. So When we think about like urban forests, I also think about trails through said forest. And what's really interesting about trails is that I had quite a few participants take me on a trail because it limited. So they would like go in the trail near their house and pop out where they needed to be. And so for them, this was way better than following a street because they'd have to remember different turns to make. Whereas on the trail, they just had to keep walking and they just had to exit and they were where they needed to be. And so that's kind of like this simplified um, route making or like wayfinding process for them, but also that they got to be in nature and that, you know, it's quieter in there. Um, It's not as overwhelming. It's, you know, it's green. Maybe there are some birds singing and Lots of people stop to talk about how much they love the birds singing. Um, It was really interesting, actually. But yeah, the, this idea of trail system. And then the other thing with trails that I think is nice is that trails usually have signage. And they usually have good signage, um, like five minutes this way by walking. Uh, more so than in a city that I've witnessed personally. Um, and that may just be sort of more of a North American thing. I'm not sure. But 
like the wayfinding signage is simpler and it's easier to understand than in like uh, an urban environment. And it doesn't blink or shine or change or flashlights at you. No. And usually it's like an arrow downtown this way with a photo. And uh, that's another thing that I, I, um, that we've noticed is that like signage with icons, uh, are more difficult to understand than signage with photographs of places because icons can change over time and they're not always constant, especially in the North American context. Uh, and so, yeah, folks talked about like, if there was a photo of something that would be easier to understand with writing as opposed to like an icon of like a train or something like that. Um, an actual picture. You talk about familiarity and I know we talk, it kind of links into some of the discussions going on about reasons to keep, you know, certain heritage buildings or features. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about how those, um, physical elements like are maybe historical elements are of a place, um, whether they are helpful, whether murals are helpful, whether, um, you know, a building with a particular memory associated with it because it's an old warehouse or it's an old um, structure, you know, are these important um, in, and and how are they important? Are they important, you know, just in the kind of inclusion and familiarity sense, or are they important, you know, as a navigation? Both. I would say both immediately. Uh, And yeah, the the heritage buildings like and even you just said warehouse right like it might have been the place that somebody went to work right and i've heard lots of stories of people who would leave their house and go to work um at that old where like they would walk that walk to the old warehouse and it'd been torn down and they'd be incredibly confused um and so absolutely not only for that inclusion piece but also navigation because if we think about wayfinding and something that I've uh, found out through learning from psychologists and like psychology, psychological typologies of landmarks. As a planner, I was always taught about Kevin Lynch, you know, the nodes, um, edges, ways of understanding cities, those five elements. But uh, when I started reading about the psychological typologies of landmarks, They talk about how there are landmarks that are anchor points in our memories. So home to work, home to school, home to the grocery store. And these things sort of form the anchors of our map. They're things we have social connection to. They're the things that show up the most in our memory. And then there are also compass-based landmarks. So I grew up in Toronto. And in Toronto, the Lake Ontario is always south. The CN Tower, that big needlepoint thing in the sky, is also always south. So that's the compass that I use or I used growing up. Uh, In Waterloo, it was the river. One side, it was on the left when you're going to town, on the right when you're coming back. And then there are also landmarks that tell us to change direction. So I know to turn right at the grocery store. And then there are also landmarks that serve as beacons. So you're walking along and you're like, oh, I passed the field. I'm on my way. And so thinking about landmarks and let's say heritage landmarks as not only having you having some kind of social relationship to that landmark, like the place of work, but it could also be in somebody's memory as like the directional landmark. Right. And you talked about murals and things that are different in the landscape tend to stick out to us as landmarks. And so uh, in the suburban environment, which was really interesting, was that 
because all the houses kind of looked the same, um, people were picking out the funniest little things. So the house with the stone garden, the house with the dog that always barks, the house with the gnome, the house with the flamingo, the house with the big red RV. And this is how they knew how to turn or if they knew they were going in the right direction. And so, yeah, I, it's really changed how I think about landmarks as, as a planner. And like when you're thinking about how do you design or you know, add things to neighborhoods to make them easier to navigate. Um, this this way of thinking about landmarks has really changed. And it also like piques my interest in that what would happen if we made like a community wayfinding plan? If we got people together to talk about how they get around their neighborhood and how what innovative things they already do and how we could augment that even, right? How could we come together as communities to do that? So yeah, yeah, I think this idea about designing from that from first principles is super interesting. If you were thinking, okay, now that we've consulted the community, we understand what landmarks are important for navigation. Let's just say we're not going to change those ones. And how would we design around them? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be so interesting. Anybody want to do that? Uh, yeah. Get you can imagine <laughs> though that, you know, if you had a compass point to get the CN Tower and all of a sudden it wasn't there, the incredible yeah. confusion that would cause and yet we do that on a micro level all the time. We do. We do. We absolutely do. And we don't, yeah, we talk like regeneration happens all the time. Redevelopment happens all the time. And we don't really talk about the impacts to wayfinding, to navigation, to how people feel a sense of place as much in terms of like the wayfinding piece. And it's so important. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's, it's kind of left out of the conversation. So it, it's not related, uh, and yet when I um, when we talk about that kind of um, lack of familiarity, you know, I think about that sense of belonging, and I think about gentrification and how the elimination of these landmarks can be mm. a kind of social cleansing or a kind of erasure for so many people. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I wonder whether you know y- your work is with marginalized communities. Whether you have thoughts about um, about the kind of approach we should be taking when we are looking to renew um, areas. And often teams are coming into neighborhoods that are not their own and they're Mm -hmm. looking to do something quite positive, sometimes not with, sometimes to or for a community. Um, But, you know, what are some ways that they should approach that project or conversation? And especially in the context of when they know this is, this could result in a displacement. Yeah. Uh, Huge problem. Great question. Uh, I, I don't know if I have all the answers, that's for sure. But I think the the thing for me and um, what I would say is that before you do anything, you need to talk to the people that actually live there. And to do that through, I think one of the best ways to do that is through getting to know who are the gatekeepers in that community. Um, are there organizations? Are there faith groups? Are there community organizers that already exist in that community and for sure they already do right um is there a local counselor um who you might get in contact with they may know who those people are too and to really spend the time building those relationships but also i mean the thing is that if you're coming into a community you you want to know what that community wants too right um and to think about, you know, can you hire people from that community to be on your team? 
can you um, hire youth to help you run focus groups or run go-along interviews? Can you also create capacity, right? Um, and I, I think that, you know, coming into a community is a huge privilege to being like part of the team that's going to like build the master plan or build the building, whatever it might be. And because you have that huge privilege, how can you redistribute some of that privilege and power? Um, and a lot of that has to do with building meaningful and genuine relationships, taking time, and really being at that um, at the top end of uh, Ernstine's ladder. Ernstine was this planner back in the '60s who created this ladder of engagement, and the and the bottom of the ladder was. Um, informing people. So they're saying, oh, yes, you will have a building. (laughs) And sort of at the top of the ladder is community control, where communities get to control how the money gets spent, what it gets spent on. Uh, And so and then there's sort of everything in between. And so for me, you know, in order to in order to mitigate all those negative impacts that happen with gentrification, with redevelopment projects, you want to be on the top end of that ladder. You want to take your time. You want to create capacity. You want to pay people for their time to be there um, and to sort of go in there with as open a mind as possible. Right. Um, Yeah. And to think about, can you hire people from the community to be a part of that? Uh, Because, you know, a lot of times with like public engagement processes, we kind of assume people like giving their free time. Uh, And there's a lot of power associated with like compensating people for being there. Right. Um, Yeah. It's a huge issue. Huge. You're working mostly in a North American concept, a context. You're working mostly in a North American context. So I'm going to ask you about the car. Sure. Yay cars, boo cars. (laughs) What do we do with them? (laughs) I'm going to be, I'm going to be, I can't be dichotomous and pick yes or no uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, I am well aware that in a lot of communities, the car is the only way to get around and to take transit involves multiple buses. And like, it's just, it's not doable. Right. Um, And I think like if you got rid of the car tomorrow, it wouldn't solve our public infrastructure problems, right? Like it wouldn't solve the fact that um, we don't have great uh, public uh, transit out in the inner suburbs of Toronto in Scarborough, North York and Etobicoke. Uh, it wouldn't change the fact that those communities are built around the car, right? So I don't think you could get rid of them tomorrow. Um But I think moving away from car dominated design is the way to go. Right. And then how do we fill in these infrastructure gaps in places that were built for the car? Uh, Some interesting things have been happening, like near my community uh, here in Toronto is in Scarborough. There's this one big road. It's called Kingston Road and it's five lanes across. And what they've started doing is they've put in a bus rapid transit route along part of it. Right. And that's part of adapting these bigger spaces, these bigger roads to public transit uh, and have and putting the money into it, too. That makes the big difference. Um, So, yeah, I can't say that the car is an always bad, right, because it's you have to have a car to get a lot of places in North America. Toronto, not as much, but um, in a lot of other municipalities, yes, you can't get anywhere. Um, 
And what are the blockers to public investment? Because I think it's quite common in the UK to be clamoring for more, but there was a lot of original investment put in because it's a Victorian mm. um, uh, system from the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, etc. So, you know, what are the barriers to, to North America really investing, or at least in, in the immediate context in, in Toronto and Canada? Oh, man. Um, well, uh, I, you know, it's, it's funny, like the division of powers also in Canada is interesting in that. So we have three levels of government. You have the federal level, the provincial level, and the municipal level. And what's interesting is that over time, responsibilities have been downloaded. So it used to be the responsibility of the province to do social housing. They've downloaded it to the municipality. Um, and so over, so there was all this investment in like social housing in the sixties and seventies, and then it just stopped from the federal government. And so you have all this aging and decaying stock that doesn't have money for to like be repaired or those repairs are falling to the municipality. Municipality is very little taxing power, truthfully, in the scheme of things. Uh, in Ontario, it's mostly just property taxes that municipalities rely on, which is um, arguably a regressive tax. Uh, and so there's that in terms of operations. But then there's also something interesting in Canada in that municipalities don't actually have constitutional status in our country. So that means that the province, uh, so we call municipalities creatures of the province. And so provinces can at any time decide to dissolve a municipality. They can decide to override a decision because municipalities have no constitutional status. And that has caused a lot of upheaval in Toronto in the past little bit, perhaps most recently with uh, the premier in the province midway through a mayoral election uh, and council election divided the number of wards in two in the middle of an election <laughs> and it was upheld at the Supreme Court. And so there are these jurisdictional issues of how how money gets done and financed and to think about um, who's getting voted into office as well is something to think about. A lot of transit projects in this area have been derailed by politics, right? And there have been, you know, one government comes in and has a plan, that government's out, oh, we have a new plan. And so it's like all of that preparatory work, or all of that work that was put into that particular project is now thrown out the door. And so there's political volatility in it. Um, and that makes it really difficult. Like we are now building a light rapid transit route sort of along the, the a little bit north of the downtown, east-west along the city. And that is the most recent like transit rail route since the 1960s. So that's, um, yeah, there are a lot of issues associated with that for sure. Um, I think yeah. there's a lot of uh, discussion in the UK, you know, how do we, amongst the kind of um, at council level, how do we take the politics out of planning? How do we stop that political mm. upheaval, the kind of grandstanding, the grand projet that then gets completely taken away um, by the next person who comes in because that was the, the, the last 
mm. leaders, um, uh, you know, big project and, and that kind of um, ego driven planning, which I'm hearing you talk about <laughs> here in the same way. Um, and I guess um, I guess one of the things that um, narratives would hopefully help with is kind of establishing that shared ambition. And one of the things I'm thinking about a lot now is that origin of um, planning in public health and, you know, going through this health pandemic, just seeing how issues of overcrowding, issues of um, of equity um, and access to uh, to amenities or transport and how um, the pandemic really shone a light on on how our cities could be planned better for equity. And in fact, planning was all about, yeah, about equity and public health. Um, do you see when you're teaching and your students, do they still have that passion for public health as a driver or has that been lost a little bit? And, and do we need to kind of fight to get that back as an overarching vision? Yeah. Um, I would say, yeah, incredible question and sort of like narrative as well. Um, yeah. So public health and planning were together in cholera and the Broad Street pump and all that piece and then planning and public health sort of went in different directions of like public health went let's change the individual behavior route so like stopping people from smoking and like those kinds of pieces and like healthy living and then planning sort of went this like technocratic economic route as well and so they're kind of like away and came back together I think probably in like the 80s with the healthy city movement and has sort of grown and grown and I think people are coming more and more to planning and health as being directly related um, and I see way more coalitions between folks who are in public health and in planning uh, that's that's really promising and really interesting and I see it in my students too they're interested in the well-being of marginalized populations they're interested in building equity and community and how do we do that right um, and I think uh, one of like and it's it's definitely happening in the in the greater Toronto area as well one of my favorite reports that I like to speak to that I think is also indicative of this coming back together is, the chief medical officers of health in the greater Toronto area came together in 2014 with planners and public health folks, and they actually quantified the health costs to suburban sprawl. And so they quantified if you keep building the way you're building, it's going to be this many more cases of hypertension, this many more cases of diabetes, and it's going to impact our healthcare system in this like monetary way. And so I think that kind of, of course, that's not the be all and end all about like what is health and what is well-being by any stretch of the imagination. But those kinds of like narratives and like putting it in people's faces, I think, hits it home. Um, and yeah, I would say that more and more people are really interested in what are these links. Um, and it's kind of funny uh, that you asked that, too, because my dad's a planner and my mom's a public health nurse. And so didn't plan it to be that way, but I'm sort of at this intersection and it's really just interesting to uh, hear and see about the work that's happening in municipalities, where these two departments are now working together and that's happening globally, right? Um, in the EU, it's happening all over. And I think that that's a really positive direction. Like it was already happening before the pandemic, mostly focused on chronic disease mental health impacts, those kinds of things. But now with the pandemic, it's like all these things are coming back together again, even more so, right? And I think the thing that we have to be careful about is 
We witnessed all of these awful, inequitable impacts happen during the pandemic. It was the peripheral areas that were hit the hardest. There were people who were working in lower wage jobs. It was new immigrants. It was racialized folks, disabled folks, older adults. These are all the people that were most negatively impacted because we live in a society that that doesn't value them, right? And so for me, we have to remember what that is and remember that when we go to build back better, as they say, with my quotation marks that I'm waving that you can't see, um, is that we can't forget what happened here, right? And we have to right those inequities. We can't just be like, okay, yeah, we're all back. Patios are out. We're all good. Um, we have to remember that those folks are the people most negatively impacted and we have to re-examine the structures as to why that's happening. I just want to thank you for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast, Christine. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.